In this month of remembrance, we pick up the story of Woodbine Willie. We've got the antidote to pantomimes. And lots more in this November edition of the Worcester Talking Magazine. Those with me tonight are... Pam, Gloria, Barney. And my name is Stephen. November is a month forever associated with the theme of remembrance, and especially so this year as we mark the 100th anniversary of the First World War. 100 years ago, at the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month in 1918, the guns fell silent, and the war, ironically referred to as the war to end all wars, came to an end. At home, there was tremendous rejoicing, but amongst the soldiers at the front, feelings were more ambivalent. In his book, Lost Voices of the First World War, Max Arthur has gathered together the memories and reflections of the ordinary officers and men who served in France. And here they are, recalling the day the war ended. Corporal Reginald Hayne. It wasn't like London, where they all got drunk, of course. No, it wasn't like that. It was all very quiet. You were so dazed, you just didn't realise that you could stand up straight and not get shot. Corporal Clifford Lane. As far as the armistice was concerned, it was a kind of anti-climax. We were too far gone, too exhausted, really, to enjoy it. All we wanted to do was go back to our billets. There was no cheering, no singing. That day we had no alcohol at all. We simply celebrated the armistice in silence and thankfulness that it was all over. And I believe that happened quite a lot in France. It was such a sense of anticlimax. We were drained of all emotion. That's what it amounted to. Major Keith Officer. At 11 o'clock on the 11th of November, I was sitting in a room in the Brewer's House at Le Cateau, which had been Sir John French's headquarters at the time of the Battle of Mons. I was sitting at a table with a major in the Scots Greys, who had a large old-fashioned hunting watch, which he put on the table and watched the minutes going round. When eleven o'clock came, he shut his watch up and said, I wonder what we're all going to do next. That was very much the feeling of everyone. What was one going to do next? To some of us, it was the end of four years, to others three, to some less. For many of us, it was practically the only life we had ever known. We had started so young. Nearby, there was a German machine gun unit giving our troops a lot of trouble. They kept on firing until practically at 11 o'clock. At precisely 11 o'clock, an officer stepped out of their position, stood up, lifted his helmet and bowed to the British troops. He then fell all his men in front of the trench and marched them off. I always thought this was a wonderful display of confidence in British chivalry because the temptation to fire on them was very great. One of the best-known poems to come out of the experience of war is The Soldier, written by Rupert Brooke, who died in 1914. And Barney's going to read it for us now. If I should die, think only this of me, that there's some corner of a foreign field that is forever England. There shall be in that rich earth a richer dust concealed, a dust whom England bore, shaped, made aware, gave once her flowers to love, her ways to roam, 
a body of England's breathing English air, washed by the rivers, blessed by sons of home. And think, this heart, all evil shed away, a pulse in the eternal mind, no less gives somewhere back the thoughts by England given. Her sights and sounds, dreams happy as her day, and laughter learnt of friends, and gentleness in hearts at peace under an English heaven. The problem for so many people was at the end of the war there was no corner of a foreign field. Many of the soldiers who died had no known grave. And so for their relatives, the tomb of the unknown warrior provided a focus for their grief. Just inside the west door of Westminster Abbey, there is a black marble slab which marks the grave of the unknown warrior. It has become a place of pilgrimage for the thousands of people who lost relatives and friends, not only in the First World War, but in the many conflicts since. It was, and is, particularly evocative for those who have no other grave to visit. Of the around one million men killed in France, approximately half have no known grave. The concept of the unknown warrior was first conceived in 1916 by an army chaplain, the Reverend David Railton. The idea came to him when he saw a grave marked by a rough cross on which was written, An Unknown British Soldier. He suggested the creation at a national level of a symbolic funeral and burial of an unknown warrior. The idea received the support of the Dean of Westminster, Prime Minister David Lloyd George, and later from King George V, responding to a wave of public support. A formal bill was presented in Parliament in November 1918. The decision was voted into law in September 1919. The burial of the unknown warrior was planned to take place in Westminster Abbey on Armistice Day 1920. On the 7th of November, four bodies were exhumed from each of the main British battle areas on the Western Front and brought to the chapel at St Paul in Northern France. Each was covered with a Union Jack. The commander of British troops in France and Flanders, Brigadier General L.J. Wyatt, was led blindfold into the chapel and placed his hand on one of the coffins. The other bodies were reburied and the one chosen was placed in an oak casket and taken to Boulogne, where it was brought across the channel to Dover on HMS Verdun. The following day, the coffin was taken by train to London. The journey should have taken about two hours, but it took far longer, because in every garden that bordered the line, every street and bridge, every station it passed through, was crowded as thousands of people stood silently watching. On the day of the state funeral, huge crowds lined the route to the abbey. The fact that the soldier was anonymous allowed people to believe that it could be their husband, father, brother or other relative buried there and the grave became a focus for a great outpouring of national grief. 
Once again, thousands visited the grave in the weeks following the funeral. One of the Abbey clergy particularly remembered an elderly lady laying a ragged bunch of flowers on the gravestone. She had come all the way from the Orkneys and the flowers were taken from a garden her son, who had died in France, had planted when he was six years old. The inscription on the stone reads, Beneath this stone rests the body of a British warrior, unknown by name or rank, brought from France to lie among the most illustrious of the land and buried here on Armistice Day, the 11th of November, 1920. In the presence of His Majesty King George V, his ministers of state, the chiefs of his forces and a vast concourse of the nation, thus are commemorated the many multitudes who during the Great War of 1914-18 gave the most that man can give, life itself. For God, for King and country, for loved ones home and empire, for the sacred cause of justice and the freedom of the world. They buried him among the kings because he had done good toward God and toward his house. One of the most evocative plays written about the First World War is War Horse, the story of a particular horse during the war. And it was written by Michael Morpurgo. That's probably what he's best known for today. But we're going to hear now of another one of his interests. The coach breaks out of the M25 and heads west, past Reading and Bristol, over the River Severn. It skirts Newport and Port Talbot, the countryside becoming greener, wilder, the motorway giving way to smaller winding roads. Still further west it goes, and those of the 30 inner-city London schoolchildren on board, who are still awake, catch their first tantalising glimpse of the sea. And then a grassy farm track, bordered by fields, grey dry stone walls, buzzards heaving themselves off telegraph poles. And two signs, one for the National Trust, the charity looking after this landscape on the very edge of Wales, the other an illustration of children and animals. Quentin Blake's char characteristically crooked capitals spelling out Farms for City Children. The coach rumbles to a halt outside a farm building with cheerful red doors. As the engine dies, there's an instant of silence broken only by the bleat of a goat, the cry of a bird. Lower Triginis in Pembrokeshire is tenanted by Farms for City Children, a charity set up by author Michael Morpurgo and his wife Claire 42 years ago. It's the second of the charity's three farms. The others are in Devon and Gloucestershire. And following extensive restoration, it has been welcoming inner-city children since 1990. Michael says the farm's setting was carefully considered before it was selected. The beauty of the landscape is very important, he explains. It's also important that the children feel they are contributing to the landscape. 
I don't think anyone feels truly part of something unless they contribute to it. The children certainly contribute. The farm wouldn't function without its young urban visitors. They get up early to feed livestock, work hard all day and go to bed exhausted and happy after 12 hours spent in the fresh air. There are no screens here. Free time is spent playing in a huge green space overlooking the sea. The farm has about a dozen goats, pedigree pigs and some 40 rare breed chickens, as well as an incubation area for raising chicks. There are ponies, donkeys and a number of sheep, a vegetable garden, a polytunnel and a field to grow swedes, pumpkins and potatoes. Three times a day, the children eat food produced on the farm, sitting together with the adults in a light, airy dining room. For some, it's their first experience of mealtimes as a shared social experience. Rather than eating a microwaved meal off a plastic tray in front of a TV or tablet, I think it's one of the most important parts of the week, says farm manager Dan Jones. Dan used to be a teacher, bringing his school to the farm before leaving the profession to run Lower Treguinis full-time. This week's 9- to 11-year-olds come from All Souls Primary, a small Church of England school in Westminster that has been sending children twice a year for many years. We notice big changes in the children when they come here, says Carwin Morris, assistant head at All Souls, There are children who are withdrawn before they go and just one week here changes them for life. Children who don't mix well with their peers at school mingle happily here. 11-year-old Brujana is one of the few All Souls children who has visited twice. Where I live, there are more people and roads, she says. This is very different and I like both. Here I like to see all the animals, especially the goats. Ten-year-old Tai-Tai steps confidently into the billy goat pen, rattling a tin feeding dish. He likes to wee on things to impress the girls, he says matter-of-factly. In the garden, a group weeds thistles from raised vegetable beds. I like eating the food that's grown here, says ten-year-old Hadid. It tastes different from food you get in the shop. It's sweeter, more fresh. Dan doesn't shy away from the reality of farming. We talk about vegetarianism, about how if you want to eat dairy products, an animal has to be born. We have quite deep chats sometimes. They see the mating, the birthing. They know what happens and they don't giggle. At the end of each week, Dan holds a leaving ceremony, calling each child up by name and awarding them a commemorative badge. We get tears when they have to leave, he says. They feel so safe, so at home here, and they have achieved something that matters. One of the National Theatre's last performances of Michael Morpurgo's War Horse was a special gala. The guests were a thousand children who spent a life-changing week at one of the three farms for city children. 
Some are the second generation in their family to have visited. It's very special when the children of children who have been to one of our farms come back, and when the teachers return too, says Michael. For many of these teachers, whose area is as urban as the children, this is paradise. What's best of all, and it does happen quite a lot, is that the children grow up and become teachers themselves, and then they bring kids down here. We want to get more children out and appreciating this extraordinary legacy we've all got. The need becomes greater each year. As a PS, I was told recently that one of the things which inspired Morpurgo to write Warhorse was the relationship of a schoolboy from Birmingham, as it happens, formed with a horse during his time at the farm. Well, the children at Lower Treguinis obviously had a wonderful time with all the animals. Our next piece is about another small child who formed a relationship with an animal, this time a rather different one, because the animal was a lion. Those of you who heard the September magazine will have heard the uh, monologue Albert and the Lion. Well, that wasn't the only one that Marriott Edgar wrote about Albert. He couldn't very well leave Albert stuck inside the lion, so he followed it with Albert's return. You've heard our young Albert Ramsbottom at the zoo in Blackpool one year with a stick with an horse's head handle gave a lion a poke in the ear. The name of the lion was Wallace. The poke in the ear drove him wild. And before you could say Bob's your uncle, it upped and he'd swallowed the child. He was sorry the moment he'd done it. With children, he'd always been chums. And besides, he'd no teeth in his noddle and he couldn't chew Albert on gums. He could feel the lad moving inside him as he lay on his bed of dried ferns. And it might have been little lad's birthday. He wished him such happy returns. But Albert kept kicking and fighting and Wallace got up feeling bad and decided to a time that he started to stage a comeback for the lad. Then putting his head down in one corner, on his front paws he started to walk, and he coughed and he sneezed and he gurgled, till Albert shot out like a cork. Old Wallace felt better directly, and his figure once more became lean. But the only difference with Albert was his face and his hands were quite clean. Meanwhile, Mr and Mrs Ramsbottom had gone back to their tea feeling blue. Ma said, I feel down in the mouth like. Pa said, I bet Albert does too. Said Mother, it just goes to show you the future is never revealed. If I thought we was going to lose him, I'd have not had his boots sold and healed. Let's look on the bright side, said Father. What can't be helped must be endured. Each cloud has a silvery lining. And we did have young Albert insured. A knock at the door came that moment, as father these kind words did speak. Twas the young man from the Prudential. He'd called for their tuppence per person per week. When father saw who had been knocking, he laughed and he kept laughing so, that the man said, Here, what's there to laugh at? Pa said, You'll laugh too when you know. Excuse him for laughing, said mother. But really, things turn out so strange. Our Albert's been ate by a lion. You've got to pay us for a change. Said the young man from the Prudential, 
Now, come, come, let's understand this. You don't mean to say that you've lost him. Pa said, oh, no, we know where he is. When the young man had heard all the details, a purse from his pocket he drew, and he paid them with interest and bonus the sum of nine pounds four and two. Pa had scarce got his hands on the money when a face at the window they see. And mother cried, Hey, look, it's Albert. And father said, Ah, it would be. Albert came in all excited and started his story to give. And pa said, I'll never trust lions again, not as long as I live. The fellow from the Prudential to pick up the money began. But father said, Hey, wait a moment. Don't be in a hurry, young man. In giving young Albert a shilling, he said, Here, pop off back to the zoo. Get your stick with the horse's head handle. Go and see what the tigers can do. <laughs> that wasn't the end of the story. Another one was written entitled, Albert's Reunion. You've heard how young Albert Ramsbottom and Mrs Ramsbottom and Dad and the trouble the lion went to trying to stomach the lad. Well, after the lion disgorged him, quite many a day had gone by, but the lion just lay there and brooded, with a faraway look in his eye. The keepers could do now with lion. He seemed to be suffering pain. He seemed to be fretting for something, and the curl all went out of his mane. He looked at his food and ignored it, just gazed far away into space. When keepers tried forcible feeding, they got it all back in their face. And at Mr and Mrs Ramsbottom's, the same sort of thing had begun. And though they tried all sorts of measures, they couldn't rouse Albert, their son. Now Mr Ramsbottom got fed up with trying to please him in vain, and said, If you don't start to buck up, I'll take you to Lion again. Now instead of the lad getting frightened and starting to quake at the knees... He seemed to be highly delighted and shouted, Oh, Dad, if you please. His father thought he had gone potty. His mother went nearly insane. But Albert just stood there and bellowed, I want to see Lion again. So Mr and Mrs Ramsbottom decided the best thing to do was to give way to Albert and take him straight away back to the zoo. The moment the lion saw Albert, for the first time in weeks he had stirred, it moved the left side of its whiskers, then lay on its back and just purred. And before anybody could stop him, young Albert was stroking his paws. And while the crowd screamed for the keeper, the little lad opened its jaws. The crowd were completely dumbfounded. His mother was out to the wide. But they knew by the bumps and the bulges that Albert was once more inside. Then all of a sudden the lion stood up and let out a roar, and Albert, all smiling and happy, came out with a thud on the floor. The crowd by this time were all cheering, and Albert stood there looking grand, with a stick with an horse's head handle, clutched in his chubby young hand. The lion grew so fond of Albert, he couldn't be parted from lad. And so the zoological keepers sent round a note to his dad. Regret to say lion is worried and pining for your little man. So sending you lion tomorrow, arriving in plain covered van. 
And should you go round any evening, when Albert has gone off to rest, there's the lion all tucked up beside him, asleep with his head on his chest. Well, I think most of us might draw the line at sharing our bed with a lion, but I'm sure many of you listening will have a pet, and you will know what love and affection they bestow. It's now widely acknowledged that pets can positively benefit the well-being of elderly owners. For many elderly people living on their own, their pets are their reason for living. They are constant companions, on hand 24 hours a day, every day, comforting, loving and protecting their owners, not only from outside threats, but also offering the more subtle form of protection from loneliness and despair. Pets are warm and intensely loyal. They do not criticise, they boost morale, they help reduce stress by providing emotional security and they help provide a fixed routine. Pets have the ability to bring happiness and laughter and lift depression. Communication with other people is often easier when a pet is present. The special relationship between owner and pet adds incalculably to the quality of life. But all the pleasures and benefits can be completely neutralised by intense anxiety regarding the fate of their devoted companion should the owner die, fall ill or have to move into residential accommodation. If an old faithful dies, elderly owners are often very reluctant to have another pet for these reasons and life for them loses much of its warmth, light and purpose. And that's where the Cinnamon Trust comes in. Cinnamon Trust is the only specialist national charity which seeks to relieve the anxieties, problems and sometimes injustices faced by elderly and terminally ill people and their pets, thereby saving a great deal of human sadness and animal suffering. The Trust was founded in 1985 by Mrs Avril Jarvis, whose determination and dedication has ensured that the manifest needs is fully addressed. And why cinnamon? Just as Mrs Jarvis was starting her work to develop the charity, her beloved corgi, Cinnamon, died in her 17th year. It seemed appropriate to name the trust in her memory. The Cinnamon Trust was founded for elderly people and their pets, but its services are also offered to terminally ill pet owners, for they, sadly and often prematurely, are faced with the same worries and fears as the elderly pet owners. Anyone of any age can make arrangements for pets that may outlive them to come into the Trust's care. The Trust's primary objective is to respect and preserve the treasured relationships between owners and their pets. To this end, it works in partnership with owners to overcome any difficulties that might arise. A national network of some 14,000 community service volunteers has been established to provide practical help when any aspect of day-to-day -day care poses a problem. For example, walking the dog for a housebound owner. I've been one of those volunteers for the past 12 months, so I can personally vouch for the wonderful work that the Cinnamon Trust does. A national fostering service is also provided for vets whose owners face a spell in hospital.
Volunteers take animals into their own homes and supply love and care in abundance until owner and pet can be reunited. Cinnamon Trust also provides long-term care for pets whose owners have died or moved to residential accommodation which will not accept pets. Arrangements are made between owners and the trust well in advance if possible, so owners do have peace of mind in the knowledge that their beloved companion will have a safe and happy future. When a pet is in the trust's care, either short-term or long-term, because the owner is in care, the owner is kept in touch with visits, if possible, or regular photos and letters. Many elderly folk whose pet has sadly died contact us bereft and very lonely. It's often possible to place a bereaved pet with them, and somehow there's always an immediate understanding between the two. The Trust also has a number of volunteers willing to take on a foster pet for life, but they are limited. And Cinnamon Trust has established two unique sanctuaries. There are no kennels, no cages, for these would only bewilder an old and much-loved pet. There are settees and armchairs, large warm rooms to share, rugs on the floor, all familiar, comforting and comfortable. The routine mimics that of the average household and experienced loving care ensures that even a very old animal soon feels at home and settles happily. All manner of wildlife finds sanctuary in the fields owned by the Trust and this adds to the peaceful and gentle atmosphere. It also makes for exciting sniffs. The Trust's first sanctuary was set up at Poldarves Farm near Penzance in Cornwall in 1988. In 1999, Hillside Farm at Ludan in Devon was purchased and converted to the same high standard as Poldarth's for our second home-from-home sanctuary. The aim of the Trust is to establish additional small homely sanctuaries as the need arises and funds permit. So, how is help obtained? In cases where there is need for help or reassurance, Pet owners themselves or their relatives, neighbours or professional carers, doctors, nurses, social workers etc. should contact Cinnamon direct and explain the problem. The Trust, if it can, will do whatever is possible to help either by providing voluntary assistance locally or by taking a pet into care. The Cinnamon Trust believes strongly that more residential homes should be encouraged to accept old people with their pets and campaigns for this provision to be more widely available. If you or someone you know is considering entering a home, send for a copy of the Trust Pet Friendly Care Homes Register for your county. This lists all types of accommodation for the elderly which are happy to accept pets with residents. And finally, two stories of the help and support the Cinnamon Trust have been able to provide. Bonnie and Clyde were 15 and Poppy was 14 when Anne was admitted to a hospice. Devoted to each other, her gorgeous family of Burmese cats came to Poldarve Sanctuary Cinnamon sent photos and letters so Anne knew they'd settled in happily and still did the things they'd always done, like sleep together in one furry heap, stalk each other in play and swap dinner dishes halfway through eating. Audrey is blind. She's always had dogs and looked after them beautifully. Devastated when her old dog died, she contacted Cinnamon. At about the same time, Penny, a lovely black cocker spaniel aged 10, was deeply traumatised by her owner's death. 
She needed one-to-one care and fast. Audrey and Penny have been inseparable ever since. Penny goes everywhere with Audrey, and as far as all the shops are concerned, Penny is Audrey's guide dog. They are just a perfect pair, meant to be. If you feel that you or someone you know could benefit from the help of the Cinnamon Trust, they can be contacted on 01736 757 900 and they also have a website, www.cinnamon.org.uk. Well, we seem to be developing something of a theme here because our next piece is about Beatrix Potter who's, of course, best known for her wonderful stories about animals. And this piece is from a National Trust magazine, and it's about Beatrix's life at Hilltop. For a small Lake District farmhouse, Beatrix Potter's Hilltop packs a big emotional punch. The connection people feel with this place is very strong, says house steward Catherine Pritchard, who has been known to hand out restorative cups of tea to overwhelm visitors moved to tears by the experience. They can get a bit emotional. Beatrix Potter's Little Animal Tales are deeply loved by readers and Hilltop was more than just a house to her. It was a place where she could be herself, the place where she wrote 13 of her 22 books and where many of her famous scenes are set. Today, it remains her personal museum, furnished and untenanted, just as she asked for it to be when she left it to the National Trust in 1943. Hilltop was never a traditional home for Beatrix. It was more a life-size doll's house, that she filled with treasured objects, apt for a woman, who herself admitted that she never grew up. She never lived here full-time, though. When she married local solicitor William Healis in 1913, she bought Castle Cottage, a larger home over the road in which to enjoy married life. She invited family, friends and guests to Hilltop, but the house was always entirely her own. As such, it is the most personal monument there is to one of the last century's greatest illustrators and storytellers. Hilltop unleashed Beatrix from the shackles of her middle class, Victorian upbringing. Like many children of her class, Beatrix, born in 1866, suffered a cloistered childhood tucked away in the third-floor nursery of 2 Bolton Gardens, London. She grew up with only her brother Bertram for close company. Her mother discouraged friendships with other children, saying Beatrix and Bertram would catch germs. As she grew up, Beatrix was increasingly left to her own devices. Art and observing nature were her solace. It is all the same, drawing, painting, modelling, the irresistible urge to copy any beautiful object which strikes the eye, she later wrote in one of her letters. Holidays provided an escape from London, her unloved birthplace. Every summer the family rented a house in Scotland or the lakes. Here, among the fields and woods, Beatrix was happy. 
I do not remember a time when I did not try to invent pictures and make for myself a fairyland among all the thousands of objects of the countryside. She later realised my brother and I were born in London, but our descent, our interest and our joy were in the North Country. In July 1896, when Beatrix was 30, the potters stayed in near Sori. It is as near perfect a little place as I have ever lived in, she wrote in her journal of that year. Nine years later, she bought Hilltop in the same village, using the royalties she'd earned from the tale of Peter Rabbit. She had found her home far, far away from London. The working farm, with its farmhouse, farm buildings and orchard, brought her lasting happiness. Most of Hilltop's rooms are small. Beatrix compared the house to an overcoat, at once comfortable and comforting. Her house was like her, says Catherine, practical, unpretentious, a bit of a survivor. As you walk through the entrance hall, simplicity is everywhere, in the quiet beauty of the stove, the oak furniture and the stone flag floor. In contrast, Beatrix's sophisticated parlour is a surprise. The elegant furniture blends with wood-panelled walls and, along with a marble chimney piece, are reminders of her middle-class upbringing. Every painting, piece of furniture and antique in the house meant something to her. Trophies for sheep breeding jostle alongside photographs of Beatrix at agricultural shows, for she was passionate about farming, particularly Herdwick sheep. I am the chair at the Herdwick Breeders' Association meetings, she once wrote to a friend. You would laugh to see me amongst the other farmers, usually in a tavern after a sheep fair. Upstairs in the largest room, Beatrix wrote letters and composed her little books. She called it her library. Here, with a view over the glorious Lake District landscape, she wrote the stories that have been passed down through generations ever since. Hilltop's half-acre cottage garden still reflects Beatrix's own informal higgledy-piggledy style. There's a small vegetable garden opposite the house and you can see the rhubarb patch where Jemima Puddle Duck famously tried to hide her eggs. The farm at Hilltop is much as it was too. We don't do anything differently, says Gary Dixon, the tenant farmer who cares for it. We're still farming traditionally. In return for all the inspiration the landscape gave to Beatrix, she fiercely protected it. She used the money from her books to buy more farms and land under threat of development. She worked closely with the Trust to help preserve the lakes. Her contribution to the Trust is so valued that its head office is named Helis, her married name. Today, some 152 years since her birth, Beatrix's books are still delighting millions. In the Lake District, the land she passed on to the Trust is still being cared for as she wished. It is, however, in her unassuming little farmhouse that Beatrix's spirit shines the brightest. Well, that farmhouse... 
forms a memorial for Beatrix, and in Worcester each year, a different sort of memorial is held. As every year on the anniversary of the last battle of the English Civil War, the Battle of Worcester Society holds a drumhead service of remembrance to commemorate those that fought and died for their beliefs in and around this city during the English Civil Wars. John Plush went to watch and listen. When all these things to pass shall come, then farewell, musket, pike and drum. The lamb shall with the lion feed, which were a happy time indeed. Hi, my name's John Hewitt. I'm part of Worcester Reenactment Society. Today we're outside the Guild Hall getting ourselves prepared for uh, a parade down to the commandery and then from the commandery where there's going to be a reception we shall go up to Fort Royal Hill where we will be able to uh, commemorate the Battle of Worcester. Um, and we have what's known as a drumhead um, remembrance service. The Reenactment Society is uh, formed by people who've either been a member of the Sealed Knot or they've been a member of... Um, uh, Worcester Reenactment Society in the uh, over the previous few years and prior to that they might have been uh, Worcester Militia or many other reenactment societies. Um, they put a tremendous amount of effort into stuff and they spend a phenomenal amount of money getting their costumes and many of them take part um, as reenactors from different eras. Last weekend it was um, a Tudor uh, weekend and they had all the medieval um, tents and goodness knows what else. It's quite superb. Whilst the reenactors and mayoral party have a care, show your arms. Fight them all. Sarah Bourne, yes. you're in charge of what's going on here today. Uh, well, I'm building an events coordinator here at the commandery and tonight I'm here sort of overseeing um, the celebration, um, commemoration of the drumhead ceremony for the Battle of Worcester. In 1651, uh, the last battle of the English Civil War took place here in Worcester and we're here today to remember the soldiers in the fallen of that battle and I think it's very important for Worcester to understand its civil war history and the importance of it. Uh, people forget that the last cavalry charge on English soil was in Worcester High Street which is quite a strange thing to think about but English soil that is and, and it's, it's a battle that goes it gets forgotten and I think it's important that we remember and as Worcester people we should remember this and remember the poor soldiers that lost their lives and were deported as well. So many bodies, actually, of Scottish troops fell into the fell into the uh, into the river at Bewdley that it dammed oh, yeah, and flooded yeah, yeah. the town. Historian Steve Templin 
otherwise known when he's in uniform, as he is today, simply as Truff of the Worcester Militia. It might be apocryphal, but apparently the, the, the carnage at Bewdley after Worcester was so bad that, like I say, the bodies from the Scottish troops flooded the town. Then they retreated, they was all up in towards Kidderminster. There was running skirmishes along the, the lanes near Kidderminster. Haberley, for instance, there was two girls killed in crossfire because they were sheltering in the barn. And like I say, because of the, uh, because of the crossfire and all the, the hullabaloo from, the, from, the, from this skirmish, not even a battle, it was just li- literally a little, little skirmish. And when the, uh, when the musketry started, they freaked out, sort of ran out and w- ran straight into a crossfire between two opposing uh, bodies of parliamentarian and Scottish troops. The two, one was about 12 and one was 14. And I've seen the ghosts. Where? How? Habley. We were going to feed my mate's horses in the evening and... Uh, and in the headlights, it looks like there were two figures, two girls in long dresses, and they disappeared into this sort of paddock area that was completely overgrown with brambles, you, literally sort of seven or eight foot high. You couldn't have got in. We ran down towards them and suddenly realised that there was nothing there. How did that make you feel? Sad, but fascinating. Sad, sad but fascinating as well. It, it, it's extremely sad, but it's also that human contact. You know, and that uh, feeling of empathy and sympathy and sadness and warmth and and just just humanity. I think you see. You know, uh, drums and colours. If you form a drum head in front of the mayoral party, please. Two drums and the colours draped across. Captain. Thank you. Though for a time you may see white hall with cobwebs hanging on the wall. Instead of silk and silver braid, which formerly it used to have in every room, the sweet perfume, delightful for the princely train, which again you shall see when the time it shall be that the king comes home in peace again. We will now have a minute's silence. Not only are we remembering the 3,200 men who died in the Battle of Worcester, but also the 85,000 men who died in combat during the Civil War. So the minute silence will be marked by our musketeers. Mr Thomas, commence a minute silence with your cannon. Parliament must willing be that all the world may plainly see how they do labour still for peace that all these bloody wars may cease. For then I can tell that all things will be well when the king enjoys his own again. A song there, handed down from the survivors of the last battle of the English Civil War, concluding John Plush's impression of the drumhead ceremony held on Fort Royal Hill. Well, we've heard a lot of words tonight, and if you're anything like me, you'll be interested in the derivation of words. So we're going to hear about two common words tonight. We're going to begin with the word magazine. Once upon a time, there was an Arabic word, kazana, meaning to store up. From that, they got makazan, meaning storehouse, and its plural, makazin. That word sailed northwards across the Mediterranean, 
the middle of the earth, and became the Italian Magazzino, which then proceeded by foot to France and became Magazin, before jumping onto a ferry and getting into Britain as magazine, still retaining its original meaning of storehouse, usually military, hence the magazine in a gun. Then along came Edward Cave. Edward Cave, born 1691, died 1754, wanted to print something periodically that would contain stuff on any subject that might be of interest to the educated of London, whether it be politics, gardening or the price of corn. He cast around for a name for his new idea and decided to call it the Gentleman's Magazine or Trader's Monthly Intelligencer. So far as anyone can tell, and in the absence of a séance we can only guess at Mr Cave's thought process, he wanted to imply that the information in his publication would arm the gentleman intellectually, or perhaps he wanted to imply that it was a storehouse of information. The first edition came out in January 1731. It was largely a digest of stories that appeared in other publications, but it also had its own column of amusing stories from around the world, such as the following... From Dijon in France, tis written that a person having withdrawn himself, his relations charged one who was his sworn enemy with his murder and examined him with such exquisite tortures that to shorten them he confessed the crime, whereupon he was broke alive and two others as his accomplices were hanged. The man supposed to be murdered soon after returned home. In fact, most of the first issue was taken up with stories of murders and executions, as the reading public has always loved a good bit of gore. The Gentleman's Magazine, or Trader's Monthly Intelligencer, was a big hit, but it was still a bit of a mouthful. So in December 1733, the Monthly Intelligencer part was dropped from the title and replaced with the slogan, containing more in quantity and greater variety than any book of the kind and price. Moreover, Cave's magazine gave employment to a young, penniless and unknown writer whose name was Dr Samuel Johnson. The next word we will look at is computer. New things need new words, but they usually end up with old ones. Computers have been around since at least 1613, when being a computer was a skilled profession practised by mathematicians who worked in observatories adding up numbers. When Charles Babbage invented the precursor of the modern computer, he called it an analytical engine. And when his son improved on the design, he called it a mill, on the basis that mills were complicated technical things and that, like his new machine, they took stuff in at one end and spat different stuff out at the other. Then in 1869, machines that could compute the sum of two numbers began to be called computers. And slowly, as those machines started to do more and more things, the word spread. Early computers were simply calculators, hence the name. Then they got software, which had to be loaded up by the user... Then in the 50s, a method was invented whereby a computer would install its own software. The idea was that a single piece of code was loaded, which in turn would load up some more pieces of code, which would load more and more until the computer had... But wait, 
first we must explain about Baron von Munchausen in the Marsh. Baron von Munchausen, born in 1720, who died in 1797, was a real person who had fought as a soldier in Russia. On his return home, he told stories about his exploits that nobody believed. These included riding on a cannonball, taking a brief trip to the moon, and escaping from a marsh by pulling himself out by his own hair. This latter feat is impossible, for the upward force on the baron's hair would have been cancelled out by the downward force on his arm. It's a nice idea, though, and von Munchausen's preposterous principle was later taken up by Americans. But instead of talking about hair, the Americans started in the late 19th century to talk of pulling themselves up by their own bootstraps. What's impossible in physics is possible in computing. And a computer that's able to load its own programs is metaphorically pulling itself up by its own bootstraps. In 1953, the process was called a bootstrap. By 1975, people had got bored with the strap. And from then on, computers simply booted up. A man who certainly had a way with words was Dylan Thomas. And this November sees the 65th anniversary of the death of the poet at the sadly early age of 39. Although not a Welsh speaker, he's regarded as one of the greatest Welsh poets. He's best probably remembered now for his play for voices under Milk Wood. And we're extremely fortunate to have it as he completed the script only a few weeks before his death. The play is set in the small Welsh town of Thleregib and covers 24 hours in the lives of its eccentric population. The narrator, the first voice, links the stories together as we meet them. Blind Captain Cat, the town drunk Mr Waldo, Mr Pugh who spends his time planning to murder Mrs Pugh, die bred with his two wives and Marianne Sailors, the town's oldest inhabitant. I have to say that one of my favourite characters is the Reverend Eli Jenkins, minister and bard. And there's a wonderful section in which we hear about the Reverend Jenkins' father. There is no known likeness of his father Esau, who, undog-collared because of his little weakness, was scythed to the bone one harvest by mistake when sleeping with his weakness in the corn. He lost all ambition and died with one leg, says Reverend Eli Jenkins. Poor dad, to die of drink and agriculture. As night falls over the town, the Reverend Eli Jenkins reads his evening poem. Every morning when I wake, dear Lord, a little prayer I make. Oh, please to keep thy lovely eye on all poor creatures born to die. And every evening at sundown, I ask a blessing on the town. For whether we last the night or no, I'm sure is always touch and go. We are not wholly bad or good who live our lives under milkwood, and thou I know wilt be the first to see our best side, not our worst. Oh, let us see another day. Bless us all this night, I pray, and to the sun we all will bow and say goodbye, but just for now.
To begin at the beginning. It is spring, moonless night in the small town, starless and Bible black, the cobble streets silent and the hunched quarters and rabbits' wood limping, invisible, down to the slow black, slow black, crow black, fishing boat bobbing sea. The houses are blind as moles, though moles see fine tonight in the snouting velvet dingles, or blind as Captain Cat, there in the muffled middle by the pump and the town clock. The shops in mourning, the welfare hall in widow's weeds, and all the people of the lulled and dumbfound town are sleeping now. Hush, the babies are sleeping, the farmers, the fishers, the tradesmen and pensioners, cobbler, school teacher, postman and publican, the undertaker and the fancy woman, drunkard, dressmaker, preacher, policeman, the webfoot cockle woman and the tidy wives. Young girls lie bedded soft or glide in their dreams with rings and trousseau, bridesmaided by glowworms down the aisles of the organ-playing wood. The boys are dreaming wicked or of the bucking ranches of the night and the jolly rogered sea. And the anthracite statues of the horses sleep in the fields and the cows in the byres and the dogs in the wet-nosed yards, and the cats nap in the slant corners, or lope sly, streaking and needling on the one cloud of the roofs. You can hear the dew falling, and the hushed town breathing. Only your eyes are unclosed to see the black and folded town fast and slow asleep and you alone can hear the invisible star fall, the darkest before dawn minutely dew-grazed stir of the black, dab-filled sea, where the Arethusa, the Curlew and the Skylark, Zanzibar, Rhiannon, the Rover, the Cormorant, and the Star of Wales tilt and ride. Listen, it is night moving in the streets, the processional, salt-slow, musical wind in Coronation Street and Cockle Row. It is the grass growing on Flaregib Hill. Dewfall, starfall, the sleep of birds in Milkwood. Listen. It is night in the chill, squat chapel, hymning in bonnet and brooch and bombazine black, Butterfly choker and bootlace bow, coughing like nanny goats, sucking Minto's forty winking hallelujah. Night in the four ale bar, quiet as a domino. In Ocky Milkman's lofts, like a mouse with gloves. In Dye Bread's bakery, flying like black flour. It is tonight in Donkey Street, trotting silent with seaweed on its hooves along the cockled cobbles, past curtained fern pot, text and trinket, harmonium, holy dresser, watercolours done by hand, china dog and rosy tin tea caddy, 
It is night neddying among the snuggeries of babies. Look, it is night dumbly, royally winding through the coronation cherry trees, going through the graveyard of Bethesda, with wings gloved and folded and dew doffed, tumbling by the sailor's arms. Time passes. Listen, time passes. Come closer now. Only you can hear the houses, sleeping in the streets, in the slow, deep, salt and silent black, bandaged night. Only you can see, in the blinded bedrooms, the combs and petticoats over the chairs, the jugs and basins and glasses of teeth. Thou shalt not on the wall, and the yellowing, dicky-bird watching pictures of the dead. Only you can hear and see, behind the eyes of the sleepers, the movements and countries and mazes and colours and dismays and rainbows and tunes and wishes and flight and fall and despairs and big seas of their dreams. From where you are, you can hear their dreams. First voice was read by our own Hugh Thomas, whose voice you will recognise from the talking newspaper. And if you've enjoyed that brief excerpt from Under Milkwood, you can find the whole thing on YouTube and we shall shortly have a copy in our library. Do you know why you called it Thuregev? I do know why he called it Thuregev. Can, can we say it? Well, I don't know. Why did he call it Thuregev? It was his bugger all backwards. <laughs> <laughs> Typical of Dylan Thomas and his uh, wicked sense of humour. Well, Dylan Thomas was writing for a very wide audience with Under Milk Wood. Our next piece is written by one of our very talented local authors and it's been written especially for us at the Worcester Talking Magazine. our girls to show enterprise and initiative. The headmistress looked at me across the desk as I tried to reconcile her statement with the 13-year-old I had just seen in the French class, sitting like a tray of uncooked scones. St Catherine's is very proud of the splendid record of our old girls. I'll have to talk it over with my husband and let you know, I said. In fact, I had already made up my mind before I visited the school. To hell with enterprise and initiative, I could do without them. The way Francis was behaving at the moment, good manners and decorum were much more to the point. And that was that. Francis duly took up her place at St Catherine's when the summer term came, and apart from putting in appearances at parents' evenings, and paying the fees, of course, I wiped my mind clear and carried on with my job as marketing manager at the Arts Centre. That was until the middle of the spring term. It was the headmistress, of course. My secretary had put her straight through, thinking that Frances had had an accident of some sort. We have a girl who is interested in media studies. Even down the telephone, I could hear the chill in her voice. St Catherine's girls did not do media studies. They won scholarships to Oxbridge and became high-ranking civil servants. I'm hoping she'll be able to do her work experience with the Arts Centre. 
Of course, I said, yes, we'd be delighted. But my heart wasn't in it. What on earth was I going to do with her? And would she be as doughy-looking as the rest of the girls? On the positive side, I had noticed that since attending St Catherine's, Frances seemed to have simmered down, although maybe it was the porridge-coloured uniform that made her look like it. It was hard to show enterprise and initiative when you looked like a bowl of oatmeal. The girl was called Melisande, and having heard from Frances that she was usually in tears, I feared the worst. I primed my secretary to find her some useful jobs, like stuffing envelopes of the mailing list, or sorting out the filing, always supposing she knew the alphabet. You could never tell these days. Then I sat back to await developments. She was worse than I expected. Large and lumpy, with train track braces on her teeth and giving to sniffing. Instructed by the school, she turned up on the first day in uniform, the brown piping on the blazer making it look as if someone had drizzled black treacle over her. She spent most of the first day standing in a corner with wide open eyes, and when eventually she sat down to start stuffing envelopes, she threw frequent glances over her shoulder as if she expected someone to leap up and assault her. I was out of the office the following day, but when I ran into her two days later, I hardly recognised her. Talk about a transformation scene. Three days in and she was wearing a pink shell suit, had put her hair in a ponytail and was calling herself Mel. This was more than an improvement and I even caught her smiling. It was strange, I thought. After being virtually invisible, I should keep running into her. When she wasn't stuffing envelopes or sorting the filing... She was putting up posters and helping in the coffee bar. She even asked if she could come back in the evening and help at the opening of a new art exhibition. After that, she came out of her shell suit with a vengeance. By the end of the week, she was helping out backstage and trashing up the roadies. When the week came to an end, I was quite relieved that it wasn't my job to put the genie back in the bottle. I said I hoped she had enjoyed herself, then went home and forgot about her. Only I didn't. I couldn't. She was there, around, all the time. By now she had lost weight, was wearing her jeans round her hips and calling herself Sandy. She haunted the centre like a brightly coloured promotion leaflet. I ran into her that Saturday, the following Saturday and the Saturday after that. In fact, well before her GCSEs, she had got herself a Saturday job. Dog's body to anybody who needed an extra hand. Then halfway through the summer holidays she disappeared. There were rumours that she'd run off with an actor. It was more likely she had lost interest, I thought, and went off to Greece for three weeks with the family. The following spring there was no call from St Catherine's headmistress. Clearly no one else had wanted work experience at the Arts Centre, and I had almost forgotten about Sandy. If I thought at all, I suppose she had sunk back into the anonymous porridge. Then in July, I had to go up to London to a marketing conference. I was halfway along Oxford Street when someone bumped into me. Sandy, stroke Melisande. Good heavens, Sandy, I exclaimed. She had lost the braces from her teeth and gone punk. How are you and what are you doing? I'm doing publicity for English National Opera, she flung over her shoulder as she disappeared into the underground. 
course, Francis will be going to the sixth form, said the headmistress, daring me to say no. Most of our girls do. I thought about Melisande stroke Sandy. When I had finished telling the headmistress, she smiled a tight little smile, but not without smugness. Typical of one of our girls, she saw her chance and took it. Initiative and enterprise. Just what I should expect of St Catherine's. Angela Lanyon there reading her own Taking a Chance. Well, someone who was always ready to take a chance was Cinderella. Barney. This is Roald Dahl's version of Cinderella. I guess you think you know this story. You don't. The real one's much more gory. The phony one, the one you know, was cooked up years and years ago and made to sound all soft and sappy just to keep the children happy. Mind you, they got the first bit right, the bit where in the dead of night the ugly sisters, jewels and all, departed for the palace ball, while darling little Cinderella was locked up in a slimy cellar where rats who wanted things to eat began to nibble at her feet. She bellowed, Help! and Let me out! The magic fairy heard her shout. Appearing in a blaze of light, she said, My dear, are you all right? All right, cried Cindy. Can't you see? I feel as rotten as can be. She beat her fist against the wall and shouted, Get me to the ball! There is a disco at the palace. The rest have gone and I am jealous. I want a dress. I want a coach and earrings and a diamond brooch and silver slippers, two of those, and lovely nylon pantyhose. Done up like that, I'll guarantee the handsome prince will fall for me. The fairy said, Hang on a tick. She gave her wand a mighty flick. And quickly, in no time at all, Cindy was at the palace ball. It made the ugly sisters wince to see her dancing with the prince. She held him very tight and pressed herself against his manly chest. The prince himself was turned to pulp. All he could do was gasp and gulp. Then midnight struck. She shouted, Heck, I've got to run to save my neck. The prince cried, No, alas, alack. He grabbed her dress to hold her back. As Cindy shouted, let me go. The dress was ripped from head to toe. She ran out in her underwear and lost one slipper on the stair. The prince was on it like a dart. He pressed it to his pounding heart. The girl this slipper fits, he cried. Tomorrow morn shall be my bride. I'll visit every house in town until I track the maiden down. Then, rather carelessly, I fear, he placed it on a crate of beer. At once, one of the ugly sisters, the one whose face was blotched with blisters, sneaked up and grabbed the dainty shoe and quickly flushed it down the loo. Then, in its place, she calmly put the slipper from her own left foot. Aha, you see, the plot grows thicker, and Cindy's luck starts looking sicker. Next day, the prince went charging down to knock on all the doors in town. In every house, the tension grew. Who was the owner of the shoe? The shoe was long and very wide. A normal foot got lost inside. Also, it smelled a wee bit icky. The owner's feet were hot and sticky. Thousands of eager people came to try it on, but all in vain. Now came the ugly sisters go. One tried it on. The prince screamed, No! But she shouted, Yes, it fits! Whoopee! So now you've got to marry me! The prince went white from ear to ear. He muttered, Let me out of here! Oh, no, you 
don't, you've made a vow. There's no way you can back out now. Off with her head, the prince roared back. They chopped it off with one big whack. This pleased the prince. He smiled and said, She's prettier without her head. Then up came sister number two, who yelled, Now I will try the shoe. Try this instead, the prince yelled back. He swung his trusty sword and smack! Her head went crashing to the ground. It bounced a bit and rolled around. In the kitchen, peeling spuds, Cinderella heard the thuds of bouncing heads upon the floor and poked her own head round the door. "'What's all the racket?' Cindy cried. "'Mind your own biz,' the prince replied. Poor Cindy's heart was torn to shreds. "'My prince,' she thought, "'he chops off heads. "'How could I marry anyone who does that sort of thing for fun?' The prince cried, "'Who's this dirty mutt? "'Off with her nut! "'Off with her nut!' Just then, all in a blaze of light, the magic fairy hove in sight. Her magic wand went swoosh and swish. Cindy, she cried, come make a wish. Wish anything and have no doubt that I will make it come about. Cindy answered, O oh, kind fairy, this time I shall be more wary. No more princes, no more money. I have had my taste of honey. I'm wishing for a decent man. They're hard to find. Do you think you can? Within a minute, Cinderella was married to a lovely fella, a simple jam maker by trade, who sold good homemade marmalade. The house was filled with smiles and laughter, and they lived happy ever after. We're going to return now to our animal theme, but not a real animal, but rather someone who dresses up as one. Richard Ginman wrote about this worthy example in the iPaper a week or so ago. Plenty of people fancy the idea of dressing up as a big pink crustacean, but it takes a certain skill set to be Sammy the Shrimp. <laughs> League One football club Southend United learnt this lesson last year when a succession of would-be shrimps tried on their muskets' brand-new costume but handed it back after one or two games. Being Sammy was hot, hard work, and the fee, £30 plus two tickets to the match, is modest. One candidate admitted it was fine with the outfit, but didn't like football very much. The new shrink costume, a more family-friendly replacement for a ghostly white pointed pointy-headed get-up that some wags compared to a member of the Ku Klux Klan ended up in storage for much of the 2017 and 18 season. That left the club's passionate supporters bereft of the cheerful decapod that has amused, roused and rallied them for several decades. Then, in a case of cometh the hour, cometh the crustacean, a new candidate emerged, Dave Foxall, a special needs teacher and seasoned shrimper fan. But his claw up for the gig, I was thinking dream job, I'd love to do that, he says. Foxall, 52, knew the importance of the shrimp to a community-based club like Southend. 
and he remembered how the prospect of seeing Sammy had excited his five-year-old son, George. George is 12 now, and despite his father's apprehension, I thought he might be a bit embarrassed. He's happy with his dad's clandestine part-time job. Indeed, he plays an important role because Foxall needs his son's help to remove his big shrimp's head. Foxall was allowed to take the costume home to practice his moves in the mirror. He made his debut in August when Southend United played Bradford City and, yes, he was nervous. It was nerve-wracking walking down the tunnel and not knowing what the reception would be like. But once you're inside the costume, you feel quite protected. It inspires confidence. The people who inhabit the nation's sporting mascots enjoy an odd kind of celebrity, a Stig from Top Gear kind of fame. Adored and occasionally reviled by thousands, they remain completely anonymous beneath layers of fabric and foam. Foxall likes it that way and declines to be photographed with his shrimp head off. He has seven matches under his belt now and has loved every moment. Realising the power of social media, he has started a Sammy the Shrimp Twitter account that documents his alter ego's busy life. He has posed for hundreds of selfies and dispensed hundreds more high fives. The club's marketing manager reckons he has taken shrimping to a new level. Foxall starts every match day in the car park where he greets supporters and their kids. Inside the Roots Hall ground, he focuses attention on the family stand before making a single pass of the away fans who greet him with mostly good-natured abuse. Goofing around with children, a big part of Sammy's job, comes easily. Being a teacher, I work with kids all day and have, and have done for 25 years. So interacting with them felt easy, he says. At first, I wasn't sure whether to approach the players because I didn't know how focused they were before a match. Did they want a big pink shrimp mucking around with them? But everyone has been very accepting and my confidence has soared. The hardest thing about shrimping is the heat. As a fan, he used to hope for fine weather on match days. As a shrimp, he prays for a cold snap. It's so hot, he says, mopping his brow, his human brow, with a plush pink claw. There are two golden rules to being a mascot, he explains. First, never speak, ever. The second, never wind up the opposing team's supporters. Mascots may look cheerful. Sammy's face is a frozen rictus of pure joy, but the people inside them are flesh and blood. Swansea City's Cyril the Swan once tore the head off Millwall's Zampa the Lion and drop-kicked it across the pitch. Wolverhampton Wanderer's Wolfie was sacked on the spot after an altercation with the three little pigs representing Bristol City. Foxall doesn't expect to clash with any of his rivals because he's a relaxed individual and Sammy doesn't travel to away games, so encounters with his furry peers are rare. Actually, 
I've built up a bit of an online relationship with Bluey, the horse at Ipswich Town, he says. And I like Hayden, the Womble from Wimbledon. Does he wish he could be an apex predator rather than a shrimp? Not at all, he says, indignant. I'm proud to be a shrimp. It's Southend United and we're shrimpers. But the eye paper also added an account of the darker side of the mascot world, the mascot fundraiser that ran into trouble. When is a mascot not really a mascot? That question became a red-hot issue at the annual Mascot Grand National, a surreal race contested over 40 centimetre high hurdles from 1999 to 2013. What started out as a fun money raiser for charity became acrimonious as the hardy men and women who spend much of the year inside mascot costumes found themselves lining up against mascots they believed weren't day-in, day-out performers. Things came to a head in 2010 when the race was boycotted by dozens of full-time mascots who believed the event had been hijacked by ringers. These imposters, they said, eschewed the heavy foam costumes worn by proper mascots in favour of lighter, more flexible costumes and running shoes. The race has moved towards something where chances think they can just come and win, said Lincoln City mascot Poacher the Imp. The event wasn't held in 2011. It limped back in 2012 at Kempton Park Racecourse. But when Barry Barrett, the Barrett Holmes safety mascot, took line on us in 2013, the controversy was reignited and the race has not been held since. We began this, uh, this magazine by thinking about remembrance and the fact that this is the 100th anniversary of the end of the First World War. Not everyone who served in France during the First World War was in the front line. For every soldier firing a rifle, many more were needed to keep him supplied and cared for. My own grandfather was an ambulance driver, and my wife's grandfather had been a groom in civilian life and continued that role when he was sent to France. Also among the non-competents were the army chaplains, charged with the spiritual welfare of the soldiers in their care. One of the best known of World War I chaplains was the Reverend Geoffrey Studdard Kennedy, and he has a connection with Worcester. Before becoming a chaplain in 1915, he had been the vicar of St Paul's, one of the worst slum areas in the city. During his time there, he gained a reputation as an inspiring preacher and a selfless parish priest. If you go into the cloisters in Worcester Cathedral in the next weeks, you'll find an exhibition dedicated to the life of this remarkable man, better known to the soldiers he served with as Woodbine Willie. He gained that particular nickname because of his habit of handing out packets of woodbines when visiting the trenches. The soldiers said they liked him for his irreverent preaching style and salty language. There's a story of two soldiers coming across a dugout with a sign saying the vicarage outside. Look at that, said one. The bloody vicarage. Stoddart Kennedy stuck his head out and said, yes, and here's the bloody vicar. He described his chaplain's ministry as taking a box of fags in your haversack and a great deal of love in your heart. 
He was extremely courageous, winning the MC for bringing in wounded men under heavy fire and often went out into no man's land to comfort the dying. Soldiers told how Kennedy once crawled to a working party, putting up wire in front of their trench. When a nervous soldier asked him who he was, he replied, The church! And when the soldier asked what the church was doing there, he replied, Its job! After the war, he moved to a parish in London, and became the country's most famous religious author, writing poems about his experience, which appeared in several books, including Rough Rhymes of a Padre. He was also in great demand as a speaker. Despite being appointed one of the King's chaplains, Kennedy was no establishment figure, speaking out strongly on behalf of ex-soldiers and the unemployed. One of his famous quotes was, If finding God in our churches leads us to losing him in our factories, then better tear down those churches, for God must hate the sight of them. Never a very fit man, the strain of continual public service finally took its toll, and he died in 1929 whilst visiting Liverpool. He was 46 years old. King George V sent a telegram of condolence to his wife, and it was an immediate move to have him buried in Westminster Abbey. But the current dean was said to have reviews saying, Oh, not him, he's a socialist. Westminster's loss was Worcester's gain as he was brought back to the city for burial. Thousands lined the streets, 100 unemployed men walked behind his coffin, and packets of woodbines were thrown into the crowd. A clue to his universal appeal comes in the words of Canon Raven of Liverpool Cathedral, who said, We let him work himself to death for us. He gave his life for us. A wonderful epitaph for Woodbine Willie. One of the effects of the First World War was that many thousands of trees were cut down to serve the needs of the army. Great areas of the country that had been wooded were completely deforested. An organisation was set up in 1972, the Woodland Trust, and it's now got over 500,000 members and more than 1,000 sites covering over 26,000 hectares. And as part of their plan to create new areas of woodland, the Trust is creating its own particular memorial to the fallen of World War I by planting some 200,000 saplings in their memory. Julian Fellows, the writer of Downton Abbey, has become involved. When I was five, we lived in South Kensington, where Weatherby Place meets Hereford Square. Our busy parents would tip us into the care of Scott, the square's enormous gardener, and it was there I first climbed a tree. I have yet to discover a more vivid way of getting to know one. The timeless romance of trees is so beguiling, the things these wise old characters have seen. This long love of trees led me to Langley Vale Wood in Surrey, which the Woodland Trust is planting with 200,000 saplings to mark the 100th anniversary of the First World War. It's a wonderful place, pregnant with potential. There are bluebell-carpeted swathes of ancient woodland there, technicolour wildflower meadows and grassy spaces ripe for picnicking. It might feel remote, but it isn't. The M25 is close at hand, and if you look north, 
You can even spy the Wembley Arch. Langley's historical significance is particularly poignant for Emma and me. More than a century ago, Emma's great-great-uncle, Lord Kitchener, inspected 20,000 troops on nearby Epsom Downs and delivered a rousing speech, urging them to behave with the true character of a British soldier as they went off to fight on the Western Front. To remember them, we'll be planting our own grove there, an acre of trees in the Trust's First World War Centenary Wood, with an established oak at the centre to represent the great Field Marshal. It will be surrounded by 750 native trees to honour the soldiers who came in their thousands to hear Kitchener speak over a hundred years ago. I was touched to be asked to give a reading at an event at Langley Vale this summer. I chose a letter one Captain Arms wrote to his wife from his post in northern France on Christmas Eve 1914. He describes how German and British soldiers began calling greetings to each other from their trenches that evening after the shooting stopped. Eventually they ventured over the top and talked to each other, singing folk songs and sharing cigars. It was, the captain wrote, one of the most extraordinary scenes imaginable. My own family lost several people in that conflict. My grandfather succumbed to meningitis in the trenches, aged 29. One great-uncle died of his wounds, and a great-aunt ship was torpedoed as she travelled to the UK from Nigeria. She made it into a lifeboat, then that was hit too, so she never came home. The war touched the lives of that entire generation, and it's imperative the link with the past is never lost. That's why the Trust's tree planting drive to mark the centenary struck a chord with me. It seems such a fitting tribute. Like the men and women they stand for, these trees are dignified, life-giving and vital. It was such a pivotal time for this country. Changes that had been creeping up for decades leapt forward all at once. I was lucky to be keen on history as a child when all my great-aunts were still alive. That would be my piece of advice to today's youngsters. Talk to the old. When we made Downton Abbey, teachers wrote to me to say thanks. Apparently many of their pupils had mistakenly merged the two world wars into one and watching the series helped them realise the distinction. That's another reason I'm so drawn to the Trust's work to honour the war's centenary. School children up and down the country have planted thousands of trees and scattered ionic poppy seeds to mark the project. There are flagship woods in Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland too. Youngsters exploring these beautiful places in future years will find statues and plaques among the trees that point them back in time. If that piques their curiosity, gets them asking why this brigade was honoured, this regiment, that event, then as far as I'm concerned, it has all been worthwhile. And Kitchener is still playing his part a century on. 
After he died in the sinking of HMS Hampshire in 1916, the Lord Kitchener National Memorial Fund was set up in his name. It assists the sons and daughters of servicemen and women still and has the great merit of awarding modest scholarships that do not have to be repaid. Known as Kitchener Scholars, they will be turning out in droves to help us plant our grove at Langley Vale. That the youngsters who've benefited from the trust founded in his memory should help create this magnificent living memorial seems fitting somehow and very complete. Well, we'd like to finish with something which we hope will make you laugh. And uh, we're going to read some stuff written by Gerard Hoffnung. I don't suppose many people remember him now, but he was a wonderfully comic writer and also a composer, although his music was somewhat eccentric. He once composed a piece for orchestra and vacuum cleaner. And some time ago, I came across a piece he had written, firstly about his time as guide at the Festival of Britain, which dates him somewhat. He recounts the helpful advice he claims to have given to visitors from abroad. Upon entering a railway carriage, be sure to shake hands with all the passengers. You will oblige your chambermaid by hanging your mattress out of the window every morning. And my particular favourite, have you tried the famous echo in the reading room of the British Museum? Hofnung then goes on to write about trying to book a holiday in the Dolomites and the letters he said he and his wife received from landlords in English. Before we start, I ought to just explain one word he uses because I've been told some people might not know it. The word is char. Well, it's a somewhat maybe old-fashioned expression now, a slang term for cleaner or daily woman. Gloria reads our first letter. Dear Sir, we have ample garage accommodation for your char. In the close village, you can buy jolly memorials for when you pass away. I send you my prices. If I am dear to you and your mistress, she might perhaps be reduced. We are also noted for having children. Dear Madam, I am honourable to accept your impossible request. Unhappy it is I here have not bedroom with bath, a bathroom with bed I have. I can now give you a washing with pleasure in a most clean spring with no person to see. I insist that you will like this. Honoured sir, I am amazing diverted by your entreaty for a room. I can offer you a commodious chamber with a balcony imminent to the romantic gorge, and I hope you would want to drop in. A vivacious stream washes my doorsteps, so do not concern yourself that I am not too good in bath. I am superb in bed. Sorrowfully, I cannot abide your auto. Sir, having freshly taken over the proprietorship of this notorious house, I am wishful that you remove to me your esteemed costume. Standing among savage scenery, the hotel offers stupendous revelations. There is a French widow in every bedroom, affording delightful prospects. I give personal look to the interior wants of each guest. Here you shall be well fed up and agreeably drunk. 
Our charges for weekly visitors are scarcely credible. Peculiar arrangements for gross parties. Our motto is, ever serve you right. Well, we hope we've served you right tonight and you've enjoyed this November edition of the Worcester Talking Magazine. This is the first edition that we put together as a team, uh, so we'd be very grateful for any comments that you would like to make, things that you enjoyed or other things that you would like to see included. And so, until we meet the next time, it's goodbye from... Gloria, Pam, Barney and Stephen. Goodbye.